For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, celebrating sobriety with members of the Tohono O'odham Nation. How the 1953 film War of the Worlds is returning to the silver screen in Tucson. Why a high school senior in Tucson wrote a book to share his family's Indian heritage with the world. And listeners in Sierra Vista share nostalgia for the kinds of foods you just can't get anymore. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Recovery, resilience, and redemption are all things that should be celebrated, but how often do they receive the attention they deserve? Gisela Tellis introduces us to Eddie Grijalva and some of the visitors at a unique gathering for people coping with life's greatest difficulties. It's meant to help them see they are respected and supported on their journey to wellness. drumming, you know, the, the, the heartbeat of the Mother Earth, to us, that's, you know, life. It's part, part of uh, who we are as a people. A very good morning to everybody. Don't let the rain bother you. I have never seen anybody melt. We'll start, uh, of course, as we always do, uh, with uh, honoring the people, first of all, right? On Otham Nation and uh, the Sanavir District for allowing us to gather at the Recreation Center. 12 years! We are at the Sanavir uh, Recreation Center on the Sanavir District of the Tahan Otham Nation. And we are celebrating what we call the 12th Annual Red Road to Wellbrighty Celebration. Protect us wherever we walk upon this Mother Earth. Uh, celebrating recovery in our Native communities. We uh, try to bring an emphasis on uh, that it is possible that people do recover, that people can change their lives. Red Road is a, uh, a term that was coined uh, by Native Americans, kind of is walking the right road, uh, the right way. Everybody knows uh, the difficulties and challenges that most Native communities encounter, but very few people are doing anything to celebrate people who are doing well, people who have changed their lives, and not just, you know, changed it. Uh, uh, some of these folks have been clean and sober for 40, 50, 60 years, and uh, we want to honor those people. And we ask people how long they've been clean and sober, and then we do a countdown all the way down to one day. The recovery countdown, where, you know, we count down the number of years that people have been clean and sober, and these people step up and say, I've got 30 years, 35 years, 40 years. And of course, we have people who also step up and say, you know, I've, I've, I've been clean and sober 20 days, uh, 15 days. So it gives them uh, a place where the stigma is sort of removed. And so it gives them, you know, an opportunity where somebody says, look, we're going to celebrate recovery. We're not going to talk about all, you know, all the things that you know, we can't do. What about the things that we can do? 
I myself am, am in recovery and um, having uh, had some difficult uh, obstacles in my life that I had to face in reality facing them and not just glossing over them and, and uh, thinking that um, there's got to be something better than this. Uh, and beginning in my own recovery and people giving me opportunities, I mean, great opening doors for me that I never dreamed possible. So my idea then is that, look, if we can uh, put something together where you get more than one person, where you get lots of people doing this, can you imagine the impact it has, you know, in, in our community? I've been participating in the Red Rope for probably about seven years. It means a lot to me because it saved my life. I've been sober six and a half years. This is the longest I've ever been sober. Every year um, it's a struggle and uh, to raise the funds that we need to uh, put on an event like this. We're always hopeful that uh, next time we put something together and we ask the community to support us, that hopefully they will. Historical trauma has been part of the Native communities for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. And we believe that by healing one individual at a time, that, uh, that healing goes back seven generations and seven generations forward. So it's something that, you know, everyone heals. When one person heals, the whole community, it's part of the community healing as well. The feeling that people who are struggling have is that they, they, they feel like they're the only ones. And oftentimes they, they've been uh, marginalized, disenfranchised, even from their own family. People need encouragement. Uh, they need somebody to support them. They need somebody to just uh, offer a hand and uh, be able to say to them, look, you can do this, you can do this. And there's opportunities and there's resources in the community to be able to do this so you're, you don't feel alone. The Red Road is something very positive for our people. We're all fighters when we come in here because we fight for that alcohol, we fight for that drug, but we come in here and we fight for our lives when we get here. And just seeing other people doing that very same thing, knowing that where they've been before and sharing our stories, we know we're not alone now. That visit to the Red Road to Wellbriety celebration was produced by Gisela Tellis. In addition to Eddie Grijalva, we heard from attendees Adrian Antone and Natividad Cano. You can see the story you just heard at azpm.org. The personal letters of Herbert George Wells, written in 1895, reveal that he was enjoying writing his new serialized novel, The War of the Worlds. It gave him a chance to imagine the complete destruction of England, a thought process that he somehow found amusing. H.G. Wells may have been the first and last person to view his science fiction milestone in that way. In 1953, Wells' story was brought to the silver screen for the first time by producer George Powell, and it became an instant classic. Arnold Leibovitt is a producer, director, and film historian who has devoted much of his career to celebrating and preserving what George Powell created. 
Paramount Pictures has just completed a complete restoration of the film to its original Technicolor glory, and it's sending The War of the Worlds on a theatrical tour. Tucson filmgoers can be the second audience in the world to see it, after it debuted in Los Angeles last month. Arnold Leibovit will present the film at the Fox Tucson Theater on November 17th as a guest of the Hanson Film Institute. It was 1953 when it came out. I was only three years old. But I remember when uh, my grandmother and my brother came home uh, seeing the film, and they were like frightened to death. <laughs> you know, and it left an impression on me. And I saw, I'd seen it a, a year or two or later after that. It's easy to understand how people not only were definitely impressed by the thrilling nature in which the story is told, but also it goes all the way back to the 1930s and that original broadcast under Orson Welles' direction that really made War of the Worlds an indelible part of American culture. There's no question about it, and I think a lot of it had to do with the imagination of radio. Uh, Radio uh, was really a place where people could uh, uh, go with their imagination, something we've lost today. And when Powell made War of the Worlds, he pulled from some of those same ideas. There was a certain subtlety he was using where he was using a, a lot of imagination, where he was holding things back so you didn't see the Martians. It was like there was a sense of the Martians. There was sort of that something snake-like there. The use of the sound of the Martians, the Martian war machines, there was a real subtlety to it. And I think he was trying to pull from the idea that he wanted to leave a great deal to the imagination as opposed to what we see today in films, where everything is kind of in your face. There was a certain uh, uh, wonderful sense of storytelling, which is why I think the film is so effective 65 years after it was made. Where do you think George Powell's dedication for creating fantastic cinema came from? Why, of all the genres that he could produce, did he choose to produce so many excellent science fiction and fantasy films? I think it comes from Europe. He was born in Hungary. He came from an actor's family. He grew up learning architecture and became a cartoonist. He was an animator. He actually invented one of the great techniques of stop-motion animation for his very famous Academy Award-winning puppetoons. He knew about uh, literature. Even before coming to Paramount Pictures, where he made the film, he was already aware of War of the Worlds, and he was interested in it. And when he found that they had it, and Cecil B. DeMille supposedly was going to make it, and it was part of the um, canon of films they were going to make, but they decided not to do, Powell grabbed it and went with it, you see. And so for him it was a great opportunity, but he already kind of knew he wanted to do it. Let's talk for a moment about the visual quality of War of the Worlds, because it stands out. The colors of the costumes, the palette of the of the film has its own vibrant quality to it. Uh, do you think that that was a conscious choice on Pal's part to give World of the Worlds its distinct visual stamp? Oh, no question about it. He was very much a Walt Disney. In fact, he was a friend of Walt Disney's. And uh, he definitely had a sense of vision. He was a visionary. He looked into the future. Remember, this was one of the first science fiction films made in Technicolor. He actually made the very first space film called Destination Moon in 1950, and it was shot in Technicolor. When he went to Paramount, he made 
when worlds collide in Technicolor, and this, remember, you have the whole backing of the Paramount Studios and Cecil B. DeMille, we should all be so lucky. <laughs> and, you know, the cinematographer for the film was George Barnes. They paid a great deal of attention to Technicolor. And you can see it in the film very clearly. Every little detail, even down to the horn-rimmed glasses of Gene Barry, the blackboard, the use of chalk or in color, not in black and white, uh, the street scenes with cars and traffic, you'll have a yellow car or a red car. They paid great attention to accenting Technicolor. And you really see it when you watch the film. It's amazing. It just leaps off the screen. Arnold, what I'm hearing from you is that George Powell was a man who wasn't creating B pictures. They weren't small budget affairs. He was creating fantasy and science fiction epics. I mean, you really have to look at it in retrospect. Powell really paved the way for big budget science fiction and fantasy films we see today. And Powell really inspired countless artists and filmmakers today, such as Spielberg and Lucas and Cameron and Peter Jackson and Tim Burton, and you name it, hundreds of others. He's been called the father of science fiction in modern film, primarily because he did give it a epic scale. He was the first one who came along and really was the Spielberg of his day, who was giving science fiction and fantasy a platform for a mass audience. Time Machine, of course, is the other film. I and mean, if you talk, you asked me before about when you first saw War of the Worlds, for me it was Time Machine. When I saw Time Machine for the first time, that's what really grabbed me. Sure, with Rod Taylor and Yvette Mamieu. And that's the film that I ended up doing the remake of later on with Spielberg, the uh, 2002 version. I think what it was is that Powell had a sense of wonder. It was a sense of wonder and heart that came from his films. It appealed to a young audience. He was an eternal optimist. And you see that in War of the Worlds. You see that in The Time Machine, When Worlds Collide. And even in his fantasy films, The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm and Tom Thumb and Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe, every film has a sense of man overcoming the evils, the demons. And I think Pal always strove for positive entertainment, positive ideas, and, and left a great deal to the imagination. And that's the beauty of his movies. Arnold Leibovitz will present George Powell's 1953 film, The War of the Worlds, at the Fox Tucson Theater on Saturday, November 17th. There will be a costume contest and just maybe some real Martians in attendance. first met Shivansh Srivastava in August 2017, when he was on the show to share a story from Indian folklore. It was because Shivansh founded a Sunday school that educates youth about Asian Indian heritage, from Hindu mythology to yoga. 
But Chavanch is also the education chair for the Arizona Governor's Youth Commission, president of the Oro Valley Youth Advisory Council, and captain of his high school's Lincoln-Douglas debate team. Amidst all of this, he's found time to write a book about his family heritage called India, Facts, Faith, and Festivals. It's packed with photos and illustrations by his sister, Shreya. I started by asking him what was the major source that he relied on when writing his versions of these ancient stories. Definitely my own memory was one of them because growing up, I feel like most of these stories are best told orally. So my grandparents uh, in particular were the ones who were uh, telling me these stories late into the night, early in the morning as I was growing up. Um, So most um, of my interpretations and portrayals of these stories are from them. Uh, Obviously, I think especially in Hinduism, uh, most of these stories have several different interpretations based on who the narrator is. Uh, But my interpretation comes mostly from my grandparents. And uh, also, in the case of the Ramayana, um, since it's a Hindu epic, it's pretty much seen as the equivalent of what what would be um, the Bible and Christianity. So, of course, we have our own sacred text that we can look to uh, to make sure that we're accurately portraying everything. Were you thinking of this book as something that might help uh, other young Indian Americans connect with their culture? Yeah, definitely. I know that not everyone is going to have that opportunity to uh, visit India themselves uh, for such a prolonged period of time uh, where they can really immerse themselves with their own culture. So my goal with this book was to really provide that medium so that they have something um, in the comforts of their own home so that they can easily relate to these uh, aside from all the pop culture references that they might see here or there. Mm hmm. On the whole, do you find when you're researching these stories that they have a lot to say to a contemporary young person? Yeah, I think although some of the themes in the story may be represented by um, older objects, especially in the case of the Ramayana, where um, they're relying on animals, uh, the monkey brigade, uh, building a bridge with boulders, I think that part may be a little bit outdated, but I think, yes, the main theme that the entire story revolves around uh, has endured the test of time, and it still holds true for everyone today. Then another component of this book that's mentioned in the title, Facts, Faith, and Festivals, is covering festivals. Are most of the holidays uh, related to Hinduism and to religious beliefs? Yeah, I think most of the festivals that we've covered are relating to Hinduism, but we have included some uh, relating to Islam and Christianity as well, because in India, the three most popular religions are Hinduism, and then after that, Islam and Christianity. So we have covered a bit about uh, Christmas and Eid as well. Tell me something about a project that I heard that you were involved with, where you received a grant, and then you use that grant to organize a gathering to make box lunches for homeless people. Yeah, so it was part of Global Youth Service Day. It's held every year in April, and it really aims to try to get everyone, regardless of their geographical location, to um, come together on this one day and really try to make a difference for their community. This organization tries to do that by offering grants, so um, people are free to fill out their application with uh, their project plan, and based on the logistics of their application, they receive a grant for, let's say, $100, $500, 1000 depending on how much they need. So um, for our grant um, money, we were able to organize a snack packing event at the library, the Oro Valley Library. And in the end, we, uh, with the help of our volunteers, uh, we were able to create, I believe, 421 snack packs. Of all the projects you could have gotten involved in, why was Feeding the Homeless the one that you chose? 
I've been feeding the homeless since I was very young. I know uh, at age two, that's when I started the tradition of um, trying to do some kind of community service every year on my birthday. So when I was two years old, I believe that's when I went with my family to an orphanage. And that's when we distributed these kinds of meals. But for Global Youth Service Day, I really felt like if this is a global initiative, then what better way to do it than going back to the roots and where I started with. In relation to that Global Youth Project that you did with the snack packs, what's something you learned from that? What's something that you yourself took away from being a part of that project? I definitely feel like that project really illuminated the unity and the teamwork aspect. I know a lot of times people think like, oh, these acts of altruism are mostly for people who have really ascended this really high social status. But at the event, I noticed that several people, regardless of their socioeconomic background or just their background in general, uh, were willing to come together, um, maybe even put aside some differences with other people who were invited and really work together to accomplish this goal of making as many snack packs as possible with the resources that we had. So I really like seeing that come to life. Where does this desire to help people come from? Where do you think you learned to care about others in the way that you do? I think most of that came from these stories actually right in the book. One of the main components of uh, the Indian culture is dan, and we definitely talk about that in one of the chapters. But dan is basically the concept of donation and charitable acts. Here you are, a high school senior. People are going to want to know what you're going to do. What are your plans? And I know that that's a lot to ask of you, but have you ever heard of the concept of the brain drain in Tucson? No. <laughs> it's the idea that people come from all over to go to the university and they learn here and they contribute to the community, but then when they get their degree, they go away. And that's what the brain drain refers to, is the idea that we help to build some great individuals, but not all of them choose to stay in Tucson, which is to be expected. But um, have you given any thought to that? And do you feel like your family roots are strong enough here that Tucson is a place that you will want to stay? Yeah. Um, so I think you've hit the nail right on the head. Like As a senior, I'm definitely looking at all these options. I am looking at in-state and out-of-state. Um, I've actually already filled out my application for the U of A and ASU. Those are two options that I'm looking at right now. I know for ASU, I was accepted um, for engineering, and for U of A, I was accepted um, for pre-business. So again, I haven't really committed on, in any one field right now, but I have a lot of options. I'm still trying to take my time to decide so I can make the best choice right off the bat. I do like the Tucson community. It's been very great um, for both me and my family um, for the past 10 years since we moved in 2008. Whether I will stay, I'm not sure right now. It really depends on my family as well. My guest was Shivansh Srivastava. In what he refers to as his spare time, he likes to write computer programs, play ping pong, and Pokemon. His book, India, Facts, Faith, and Festivals, is available on Amazon.com. Last month, as the result of a years-long member-supported project, Arizona Public Media began broadcasting our radio signal directly to listeners in Cochise County, including Sierra Vista, Bisbee, Benson, Wilcox, and Douglas. We met with members of our new audience last week at University of Arizona South, and I got a chance to ask them about some food nostalgia. You know, the kinds of things you just can't get anymore. Can you think of a food, whether it was homemade or store-bought, that you can't get anymore, but you really wish you could? 
I'm Paolo, and uh, I would really like to be able to get some real southwestern Louisiana boudin. What is that? Basically a, a, a rice sausage, but there's also a lot of liver and all sorts of other stuff in it, uh, sometimes uh, blood. <laughs> is it spicy? Uh, it can be. It can be. And this was something that you maybe had when you were growing up? Uh, yes, and hopefully uh, I'll be able to get some in a couple of weeks uh, over Thanksgiving. I am Susan Bortman, and um, I was born in Wisconsin. And cheese curds, I think you might get them real rarely somewhere, but they used to have cheese curds all the time, and they're so yummy. When you eat them, they squeak, and they're really fun to eat, plus they taste really good. So I would say cheese curds. Hello, my name is Joseph Ike Dent. Everybody calls me Ike. There's a lot of food out here I grew up with, such as mom's hometown cooking, and I lived out here since 1986. Last summer, I was able to drive back to the East Coast and indulge in a lot of things that might gross the average person out, such as chitlings, fresh seafood, crabs, lobster, fish, things of that nature. There's not a lot of fresh seafood around here. And Thanksgiving is probably one of the days I can get things from home, such as, you know, collard greens and and not pumpkin pie, because back home is sweet potato pie. You know, so I miss those type of things that uh, take me back home, so. I'm Barbara Cetera. Two weeks ago, um, we had an event here in the Discovery Gardens, just dining on the desert. And they used local food, or that desert food that they uh, gathered, like mesquite pots that they roasted, and uh, cactus leaves, and it was unbelievably wonderful. I was so surprised. I was so, yeah, it was just so good. So my name is Melody Buckner, and there is something that I don't get anymore. It's called Texas Sheet Cake, and it was a recipe done by my mother-in-law, and I don't think I have it anymore, and it was the best because it, it was so moist, but it also was, she always cooked it for my birthday, and it's not something that I, I do for myself, and I don't think I have the recipe, and I don't get to taste it anymore, so it's Texas sheet cake. There's probably a recipe out there, but I haven't found it. <laughs> I am Lori Burkwam. Well, I think you still can get it, but when I was a little girl, I loved those candy necklaces that you would put on, and then you'd eat some off, and then they'd get all sticky. It's an actual candy necklace on, like, a little elastic string. I do remember it. They were kind of like, <laughs> like really crunchy sweet tarts. Yeah, sort they, of sweet tarty. Yeah. Yep, that is it exactly, yeah. yeah. I am John DeLala from Sierra Vista. And what's a food that you can't get anymore you wish you could? I wish I could get cherry clams, like 80s candy, like lemon heads in a box. Totally gone, only on eBay. Might be a little stale, though, after 30 years. Might be a little stale. Yeah, indeed. I'd like to thank the listeners of KUAS 88.9 FM in Sierra Vista for sharing some food memories with me. Also, we didn't forget it has been election week. If you're looking for analysis of the vote from Tuesday, you can find complete and updated coverage of the 2018 midterm elections at news.azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Mm-hmm. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.